what does the leasing office of the future look like? They're looking to increase revenue, reduce cost, or lower risk, right? My guest today has a fascinating career arc. John Pastor has gone from starting a company, seeing it be acquired when it reached 15 people, helping the acquiring company grow and get acquired while surpassing 150 employees, and then working his way up into a senior VP of a publicly traded $10 billion firm. Throughout it all, he has been leading teams that were developing tools associated with the management of large rental properties. In this conversation, we talk about the evolution of those projects, the incentives that have kept him around, and the lessons learned from multiple acquisitions. Really good stuff. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here is John Pastor. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. John, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's, I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. So there's there's a bunch of stuff to unpack from just what you've been working on here for the last while. Um, I want to go back to the kind of impetus for me reaching out to you, which we will be familiar because a recent episode we had Gung on talking about his first company, Rent Jungle, mm-hmm. and then actually spending most of the time talking about Civic Champs that he's working on now. And as we were kind of you know debriefing and he was you know t- talking to me a little bit more, he said, I really kind of hit the lotto here because I got to found Rent Jungle with John and I wanted him to be a part of Civic Champs, but didn't necessarily have the opportunity to do so. Um, so that was the kind of impetus to, for reaching out to you, getting you on the show. And so let's start there. Let's remind people the kind of uh, initial catalyzing idea for Rent Jungle. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how you two balanced each other out from a skill set standpoint, because you both were coming from the consulting background, but I'm sure you had complementary skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be I'd be happy to. So the impetus behind Rent Jungle was really really simple, which is, I believed and and Gung shared the vision that there was no good place on the internet to look for apartments. There were a bunch of websites that were like glossy magazine brochures where you would see a small percentage of the market, and then there were other websites like Craigslist where it was just hard to sift through and find things that were good versus scams. There was just nothing out there that was meeting the need. And so we came together to start what we called the, the search engine for apartments. We ended up naming it Rent Jungle. The vision was to build the kayak of apartment buildings. So okay. this idea with one search, you'd be able to see all the inventory coming into the screen from wherever it was in, in one place. And so, and so that, that was the original idea that we had started with. And I think, you know, Gung and I had a great relationship getting that started because I, although we were both coming from consulting and from a business background, my background previous to that, I had dabbled a lot in tech, both in school and kind of other startup ideas and just some things that never really got off the ground. So I joined as the technical co-founder, the guy who kind of led the engineering team and the product side. And Gung joined me as a co-founder to lead basically everything else. He managed our, our sales folks and our operations folks and led a lot of our discussions with our customers. 
Gotcha. And so you got that up to 15 people and then that ended up getting acquired by RealPage. About how long did, uh, had you been working on it before that acquisition occurred? Yeah, so it's uh, there's actually two acquisitions there. So the first the first acquisition was a company called Rainmaker, and then Rainmaker got acquired by RealPage. Right. And so um, so if we think about the Ren Jungle business, it was helping people find apartments. But we had all this great data. We grew it over to uh, over a million monthly users. So we had a lot of apartment buildings data. We also had a lot of data on what people were looking for in the market. So it really kind of turned into this data business. And Rainmaker was a software company that was out there doing pricing and analytics and generally aggregating data in this multifamily space. And so... Um, and then were they selling it to like real estate investors and folks that were kind of in different... Yeah, exactly. Reads? That's exactly who they would sell it to. They'd sell it to real estate investors, people who are managing properties, people who are looking to maybe finance properties. So there's also a lot of banks and other intermediaries Got it. They in need there. to understand their risk profile right. if they're... Right. And, and so Red Jungle something. was selling that data and um, you know Rainmaker had that product as well, but they also had a pricing platform that relied on pricing of your competitors to figure out what your price should be. Gotcha. So if you're going to price an apartment, you want to know what the guy across the street is charging. And we, we kind of help solve that, solve yeah. that problem for them. So, so they, they acquired us uh, about seven years ago now at this point. So this would have been, this would have been three years into three and a half years into the founding of Rent Jungle. And so where, were, where was the company at that point in time? You'd raised a little bit of, of capital, but you, were, you had real revenues. Like, was it a, we're getting out because this is our first startup where we can actually like get a win? Was it, yep. man, this is just an offer that's too good to refuse or? Yeah, we, um, so we had, we had raised an angel capital round just from some folks in the Pittsburgh area and some people in our network. We raised about $400,000. And so that that's in the first four years of the company, we had built the whole company basically just on that 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 initial four hundred thousand dollar investment. And so we were really starting to grow. We had revenue above a million dollars at at that point, and we were getting up to a million a million and a half, closer to two million. And so we were out looking for people to um, to write us a much larger check so that we could grow much faster. A lot of the venture capitalists we talked to weren't interested for a variety of reasons that the company maybe was still a little bit too small for them and we had maybe had too many pivots. But there were a bunch of strategic people, people who were in the industry, strategic investors and acquirers that were interested. And so Rainmaker was one of those folks. And so at the end, we had a couple investment offers from uh, in the end, one traditional venture capitalist, but also a couple uh, strategic investors, people, other companies in that space. And so we picked Rainmaker. We're going through the process. And then halfway through the process, they said, hey, guys, we, we just want to buy you. We don't want to invest in you anymore. Can we have that conversation? And I said, well, I don't know. We have to have the conversation first. And then we were kind of off off to the races. Yeah. Um, so tell me, so, so one of the things that we've, we've covered in past episodes is the concept of an earnout, where very often when a startup's getting acquired, there are terms associated with the deal that say, you know, as the, the founding or the executive team, you need to stick around for 6, 12, 18, 24 months in order to get the totality of the acquisition offer because we basically need the right incentives in place for you to be invested in this integration happening. There's there's all sorts of horror stories of bad mergers, bad acquisitions. Yep, yep. And this is kind of one of the ways to try to align the incentives to make sure that occurs. 
some characters, it's like, you know, if they're there 18 months, <laughs> on 18 months and day one, it's see you later, peace yep. out. Meanwhile, you've stayed not only with Rainmaker Group through that acquisition, but them, once again, then getting acquired by RealPage now for quite a while. So can you talk me through what transpired there that you said... I'm going to actually stick around and, and see this opportunity through. Yeah, so so I think there were there were a couple things um, in in both scenarios. There really wasn't an earnout, and I, and that's that's good, I, I think. And the reason was is because our product became an integral part of another product. So it, it would be very hard to measure the value of my little business unit or how much it was growing within this larger larger entity. And so when we got acquired, the compensation was cash, but it was also equity in the company that was acquiring us because our job as being acquired was to make the flagship product of that company better by supplying our data into that product. Got it. So we didn't really have a standalone business that could be measured anymore after we were acquired. At least if at least to the extent we did, it wasn't as important as this mission of integrating with the other product. And so for that reason, it made sense for us to just take equity in the whole company. And so, um, you know, that vests over time and, you know, you can leave, you can leave at any time. But the reason I stayed is because that company that acquired my company, Rainmaker, basically decided that they would like me to lead Rainmaker through their next phase and through an eventual acquisition. And so I had never done something like that before. You know, I went from leading Rent Jungle with 15 people to leading Rainmaker, which was closer to, you know, 130 or 140 people. And so for me, that felt like enough of an increase in responsibility and fun that it was, that it was warranted. And when you're at that small of a company, it still feels very entrepreneurial. Like you, you almost have to add another zero to the number of employees to have it feel not entrepreneurial. Now, of course, when we got acquired by RealPage, we did add another zero to the number of employees and then some. RealPage has over 7,000 employees and was a public company up until very recently, just a, just a couple of weeks ago. And with RealPage, it's a little bit different. There's a lot of increased responsibility, getting to manage a lot more people, a lot bigger team, um, but also getting to work directly with the CEO and the president, who are two people who are also very entrepreneurial. The CEO of RealPage, even though it's a 7,000 employee company, is still the founder. Uh, and so this is a this is an entrepreneur at heart, and for me, it just felt like an extension of what I was doing. And there's also something. So I, I've tried to explain this to some friends before, but like I remember the first um, the first deal when Hannah and I started Piper, and you get in like some you know three or four figure deal, puny, <laughs> right, like your right. your your first deal that you can get signed. And then you slowly work your way up into larger four-figure deals. And then you get your first five-figure deal and then a larger five-figure deal. And it's like this ability to just grasp what a larger, more complex deal is comprised of so that you can go get more of those and less of the puny ones. <laughs> right, and right. I have to imagine that in your case, given that you're still in the same industry, in the same vertical, there's a degree to which you're just understanding, okay, the first thing we built was maybe enough to be uh, a, a certain size deal. But because the the not only is the company scaling up in terms of employees, but your legibility into how these are very large, I, I, I don't know exactly the the scale of the clients that you're now serving with RealPage, but I have to imagine that they're larger. What is their kind of buying process looks like? What are how do we reach these characters? And the legibility right, right. there is going to serve you 
wherever it is that you go in the future. Yeah, I, I think there's there's been a lot of learning. I mean, I you know, coming out of graduate school, I had done some consulting for companies that are this large, but had never had the chance to operate a group of people within those companies. And that, that can sometimes be a little bit harder because, you know, you can't you can't just give advice, you actually have to get people to do things and you know so those are sometimes people who have a, a lot of different motivations, right? Absolutely. So tell me, I, I'm really curious about the the intelligence um, associated with real estate, with apartments, uh, with different multifamily units generally, because it seems like, you know, maybe maybe Zillow, maybe Open Door, kind of these like Goliaths, like starting to enter the arena of not only buying property, but having their proprietary insights from so many people being on a network like that. As another player in the space, can you just kind of contextualize where you guys sit relative to them and how you think about a company like that entering into potentially starting to buy real estate? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, when, when you think about the market, there's a couple major players. There's people who create all the back office systems, like everything from accounting to back office management systems, documents, payments, employee management, vendor management. Um, that back office ecosystem is where uh, RealPage got its start and where RealPage is the largest player. And it's really a B2B B2B business, right? Yeah. We're, we're selling to the owners and managers of apartments. The There are a bunch of other players out there, Zillow being one, apartments.com, which is owned by CoStar being another, that are really... Um, that are really B2C companies. Those folks are out there um, working on a consumer strategy to try to get the most eyeballs and generate the most leads for apartment buildings. These are really complementary offerings. So if you think about a big apartment building, they might need Zillow to give them their leads for their leases that they need, like new eyeballs. But then they would need all of RealPage's software behind the scenes to power the, the website, the leasing, the, the contact center, the accounting systems, the property management systems. And so um, there's a chance that there's some competitive space there. Like if if one party tries to go more into the consumer direction or one party tries to go a little bit more um, into the back office software direction, for sure. But I think right now the ecosystem needs all these players. And the real estate market generally is so enormous. And, and at least from my vantage point, has always seemed like one of the more fragmented markets in the sense that there might be these kind of large enterprise scale type of providers, but there's also 10,000 different like mom and pop, like, you know, small immigrant family buying their first property or something like that, that are, you know, going in all sorts of different directions for solutions. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, there's like, like anything, there's an 80-20 in large multifamily real estate, there it's probably looks more like 70-30 or 60-40, which is like, you know, 40% of the people own or manage 60% of the assets. But there is in that other part of the market, there is a really long tail of mom and pop and small owner operators that um, that manage properties. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the the challenges associated with running such so much larger of a team than those kind of early days. So it's 15 people, you're more or less, you know, a couple pizzas, feed the entire squad, you know, open lines of communication, I would imagine, <laughs> right, to, to, right, across right. the whole org to now, you know, a, a company with thousands of people. I don't, I don't know exactly how many people are directly, you know, reporting up in, in your vantage point, but can you talk a little bit about how you've had to grow as a leader in order to be effective at such a scale? Yeah, it's been a it's been a good journey for me personally and, and very satisfying. And and I, I was really lucky that I went from 
small company to medium sized company to large company because you you almost get that training through that through that experience the you know the interesting thing about working in a large company and one thing that didn't occur to me is that at the end of the day you're really only working really really closely with 10 or 15 people because that's all the you have the capacity to do right and so the key in leading a big organization is to not think like you have to manage a thousand people. The, the key is like, what are the 15 people that I have to make sure I'm talking to on a weekly basis all the time to make sure that the organization is moving in the right direction and that the messages are getting down into the organization that you need to have. How do you stop yourself from not going beyond those 15? Well, I mean, you, you, you have to trust people to get work done and you have to be okay if they don't get it done in the right way sometimes, which, which is very, very hard. Yeah. But but if you get in too much into the work beyond those 15 people, then then you, me in this case, wouldn't have time to be strategic, wouldn't have time to have the important conversations that I need to have because I'd be, be spending all my time reaching down in the organization and, and, you know, helping somebody a couple layers down with their work, which doesn't really make a lot of sense at this type of a scale. So... In the the big aha moment for me was that managing a thousand person team and managing a fifteen person team, you really just have to surround yourself with the right fifteen people, <laughs> and then everyone else can report up through those other through those other fifteen people. That's one dimension, and then there's another dimension, which is you still need to be present and visible to the other. I guess it would be nine hundred and eighty five people <laughs> out of your thousand people, and but you but you can't micromanage them. And the way to do that is to have kind of frequent emails, you know, internal blog posts, internal town halls, where you just continue to, and, and it's not rocket science. People think that you have to be creative every single time you do this. The reality is, is you just have to pick one message and pretty much stick with it through the whole year and just make sure you're constantly reinforcing that message to people, right? Just, just what are the goals this year? How are we doing against our goals? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? You just continue to focus on those topics and do it in a very far-reaching medium, like usually a town hall or a, a giant um, you know, web meeting or something like that, which is what we've been doing now with COVID. Gotcha. So my dad always says, this is burned into my skull from childhood. There's an easy way and a hard way to learn things. So when I was young, I took plenty of opportunities to <laughs> learn things the hard way as opposed to the yeah, easy yeah. way. But in terms of those two lessons, like when you look back, would you say that those were, you know, learned easily because you had the right mentor and someone kind of led you through it? Or were there elements where it was a hard earned lesson because you maybe took a misstep? Yeah, I mean, I I think I've, you know, I think there's definitely some hard earned lessons of like, particularly trying to be the hero, because if you you have this notion of like, if I don't do it myself, it's not going to get done right which is where, like, like as as a founder in the early stages, like yeah. that, that is the reality. So it's it's not purely ego; it's partially the reality of how things once were. Yeah, but 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 I will say one thing that was extremely lucky for me is that I was I was separated from my baby, right? This company that I started, and so it was very much it was much easier for me to take a different management approach once I was thrown into something that I didn't create. Gotcha. Um, and, and so that is, that is a learning for me. Luckily it wasn't a very hard learning cause I, it, I didn't even have to ask for it. I just lucked into it. But, um, I, I do feel entrepreneurs who try to run the thing that they started without any change in role, but as part of a larger company, 
that is a very difficult situation to be in because you're trying, because you're just so familiar with every little detail because it's possible that you were the only employee for the first year or two, right? It's very, very hard to pull yourself out. I mean, I, I would almost give people advice, is, advice like, hey, if your startup is getting acquired, ask the acquirer what expansion of role or new responsibilities you can get. Because that, if you're interested in staying, that is. Because that's the thing that'll really keep you there in comparison to trying to run your own thing with a new boss, which often doesn't usually work. And you're obviously not doing all the structuring for this, but part of the way that the company has grown so large is also through five different acquisitions totaling more than a billion dollars. And so when you do get the opportunity to interact with those companies being acquired and, and interfacing with their executives, I'd imagine, I don't know if you can necessarily coach them down as that's like acquisitions occurring, but I'm sure that's a consideration that you make. Yeah. I mean, the, there's the, with, you know, I, I was acquired and then we've, as you said, we've acquired multiple companies since then over a billion dollars. Every, every group of people that we've acquired, I've, I've said some variation of the same thing too, which is that you're going to go through some cycles of how you feel about this acquisition. You're, there's going to be a lot of euphoria. We're really, really excited. We can do, we can do anything. And then you're going to realize, oh man, everything that I used to do, like just flopping my credit card down and buying stuff, I can't do that anymore. And, you know, this guy's telling me I, this user can't have access to this system. And, you know, all, there's all these things that happen when you get acquired by a bigger company. Those things will start to wear on you. So you, when you first get acquired, it seems amazing. It's like the best decision you've ever made. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is terrible. I can't be here any longer. If you just give it a chance and don't quit at that valley, then there's something really fun and satisfying on the other side, which is realizing that you can marshal the resources of a really big organization to get stuff done that you couldn't get done before because you didn't have the people, you didn't have the money, you didn't have someone in charge of function X, which only this large company has, but you couldn't have it as a smaller company. There's, there's light at the end of that tunnel. But it, but it's almost. But everyone I tell that to says, "Oh no, you know, don't worry about me. I'm not going to hit that valley. I'm I'm super into this. I'm in it with both feet. Like I'm ready to ready to rock and roll." And sure enough, six months later, they're like, "I don't know if I can do this. I have you know yet another meeting on IT security process control, and I and I just want to be making new things, right?" <laughs> right. So man, I it's, it's such a funny like also counter positioning to go from being the acquired to being the acquirer. You really have that kind of 360 view. Can you talk about, you know, acquiring as a means to growth? Um, these acquisitions you made, were they similar to Rent Jungle in that they added a kind of feature or capacity to the existing product versus, a, and maybe this is even isn't even the right categorization, but a different type of acquisition that's more a kind of consolidation of market share where there's maybe more of a uh, similar cousin to the, the core product, but by bringing those clients together, you get growth in a, a scale that otherwise wasn't yeah, accomplishable. And, and, yeah, and just, just to be clear, the acquisitions we've done are acquisitions that RealPage has done. I mean, I've, I've been a core part of a couple of them and have not been involved in a couple of them. It's the organization that's really, that's really doing this. But but I think if you look at the strategy, it's been a little bit of both, right? We've um, we've certainly acquired things that are adjacent to things we already own, like maybe the missing piece. And we've also acquired things that are the same as platforms that we already own because we like their technology better, because it has different integrations with different pieces of, of the market. We tend to do both. We tend to be very opportunistic. I mean, I think there's 
there's strategy driven acquisition where you say like where you're proactively identifying people you want to buy. That's one role um, in corporate development. And the other role in corporate development is just to field interesting inquiries from people who want to sell their companies. Because you know you could have the best strategy in the world if I'm going to acquire company XYZ. If they're not willing to sell, then it's not really a strategy. And so, and so it's always a mix of like who's willing to sell and who do we need to buy and putting those together into one thing. And really having your, your ear to the ground, just knowing like if things are kind of moving in a certain direction, where the next opportunity is going to be. Yeah, 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 ex- exactly. And, you know, it's, it's good to be, you know, as, and as a larger company too, you know, if somebody's selling, they're going to call on you. Whereas if you're a smaller company, you might not even see these deals or have the opportunity to bid on them or anything like that. Gotcha. And then the other, you know, exciting piece of news that you just talked about a couple of weeks ago being finalized was the company going from public to private. And that was also why hopefully this doesn't need the same layers of approvals before <laughs> we, we, we share it publicly. Um, can you talk about that type of decision? At, at, once again, like at the corporate strategy level, what benefits outside of not having to disclose stuff publicly every single quarter that leads to a company like this choosing to go public in that way? Yeah, I mean, so so first of all, it wasn't it wasn't my decision at all. I mean, that's the you know our our C our C C suite executives and our CEO in particular drove that that decision. I I think you know the reasons to do it. I think are pretty clear, which is that by partnering with a private equity firm, we now have a lot of capital to continue to grow both organically and inorganically. So we can continue to acquire companies. We can continue to invest in the areas that make sense. And just like my experience back in consulting, you know, there's, um, there's an opportunity to really get best practices into RealPage in a way that's harder when you're continuing to work in your own ecosystem. The private equity firm that bought us in particular has a great, um, bench of advisors, as well as industry best practices and benchmarks that we can use to help manage our business. And I think it's going to be a healthy process for us to be able to manage our business in that way, and then deploy the capital they have available to keep growing. So given that you've spent a career in software. I have a couple of friends that there, there's some form of a digital, a digital media, digital software mm-hmm. business, and they talk about, I'm, I'm going to you know make the money building this type of business over here, or my kind of career over there, and then extract some of those dollars and then build my own real estate portfolio as a way to kind of translate that into the real world to some degree. Given the fact that you're in this really interesting nexus where you're, you've got a career in software, but you have a, a, an informed vantage point on real estate <laughs> generally, how is that how has that influenced your decisions in terms of even just where you choose to live, but as you think about potentially investing in that space? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a real estate investor. Full disclosure, beyond the beyond the the real estate that I own to like live in. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not out there renting anything to anyone at at this point in time. My my interests are so focused on the software side and starting and solving hard problems that, you know, the money that I make in software goes in either to experiences unrelated to work, or into another software company if I don't keep doing what I'm doing multiple years down the line. I mean, that's still the way I look at it. I don't, I don't need to take, a, you know, make a bunch of money in software and then use it to buy apartments. I mean, I think it's, um, 
it could be a, it could be a really good investment. I think you have to be at the scale where you're not only using your own money, but you're bringing in investing investors from other limited partners. So you can really buy big apartment buildings if you really, you know, if you really want to build a business there. And when you get to that size, it's a business that's very similar to all other businesses. You've got dozens and dozens of employees, a lot of capital assets, maintenance. So for me, for me, software and internet is is um, you know where the heart is. And if I think about what I'm going to do, you know, post retirement, whenever whenever that is, you know, even if it's an early retirement, it would still be software. It would still be startups. It might look a lot more like community impact, volunteering, potentially working with nonprofits, helping people start their companies in exchange for a little bit of equity. I think all those things are very interesting to me you know, particularly if I can have an impact on multiple companies rather than just working on one thing for five years. Exactly. What is the technical problem you're currently uh, attacking with RealPage that has the <laughs> most of your <laughs> mental energy? Yeah. So, so there, there's a variety of, of problems. I'll, I'll, I'll highlight just one of them, which is what does the leasing office of the future look like? Okay. So, um, you know, if you think about a leasing office in a large apartment building, that's, it's going to be staffed with people who are giving tours, answering questions, filling out paperwork, um, answering the phones, you know, receiving the UPS packages, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But in the future, you could imagine something where um, a lot of that stuff can be online or where leasing agents who cover an entire city work together in a pod and maybe float from building to building. So maybe there's only one person in a building in any given day and there's kiosks and apps and other things that you can do to manage your life, including ubiquitous sensors, just kind of, yeah, kind of unlocking doors, checking on your maintenance requests, getting your packages, doing your payments, doing all your paperwork. All this is digital today, but the industry needs to kind of take the next step and figure out what that implies about how they want to staff these, these leasing offices in the future. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking around, thinking about what that platform looks like, what the software would need to be able to do, what the edge cases are that require a human to be there. Like I lost my key, right? It's, it's you, you, unless you have digital locks on all your doors, you can't really solve that problem with software, right? Right. And from what, and there's only secondhand, so I could be completely out of base here, but um, what a lot of these building owners are are aspiring to or kind of moving towards but have not necessarily yet realized is the interoperability of all those systems. So like you said, there could be the remote locks. Do they have the right systems so that the right person at the right place can immediately address that issue right. and kind of organize that info so that they know exactly how to solve it expediently? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a, this is a problem for this particular space. Um, we recently acquired a company called Stratus IoT, which is a platform company that has built the interfaces into all of these lock and thermostat and sensor providers. Okay. Um, and so we've recognized this problem. And so we want to, we want to continue to provide a standard at least that folks can operate against and a, a clean set of APIs that we can integrate into our products. So, you know, if, if somebody clicks the unlock button that works, no matter what type of underlying lock you have technology. Um, and so, you know, so that's one of the things that one side of our business is building out right now. And, and so, to make it super simple for people, the, the, the large real estate developers that use your platform are really, amongst other things, looking for a reduction of their operating expenses because fundamentally, if you know 
their even if that goes down by 1% or something, their ability to take more money out of the business on, and increase their returns to their investors or themselves is where all the difference is made. Yeah, so, so they're, they're looking to increase revenue, reduce cost, or lower risk, right? So at what, at what risk are we having this revenue and cost, right? Th- those are usually the, the three dimensions. And some of it is to operate with less cost, for sure, but some of it, some of it is also to operate at higher cost, but provide a better experience for renters and residents, so that they want to stay, so that they refer their friends, so that they want to pay more in rent because it's worth it, right? Yeah. Uh, this it's actually a very interrelated problem because if in a big apartment building, if you take out too much cost, nobody's going to want to live there because it's not going to be a good experience, right? Right, and and so it's how do you balance? things that generate revenue and improve experience and do it in a way that is efficient, right? It's really what any business tries to do. Each apartment building, when you think about it, is basically a tiny business. Yeah. And like anything, if you can retain your customers and not have to go out hunting for more, that's a huge... Yeah. These apartment buildings have brands. I mean, just like retail stores. I mean, they they have building names. The management company often has a brand. You need to make sure that that is a great experience that drives revenue but doing it in a way that doesn't break the bank on the cost side. Um, well, John, this is great. You answered 100% of my questions, which is <laughs> how I always dream of these uh, interviews going. Uh, actually, there's one more. I almost missed it. Back in 2005, mm-hmm. you were one of a, a very early intern at Google, one of the yep. first business uh, interns. Can you tell us about where the company was at that point in time and what it was like to enter a company that is in a completely different place now, uh, 15 plus years later. Yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was funny that they, they had just IPO'd. I think they had a f- couple thousand employees, but not the hundred thousand or whatever they have today. Um, probably smaller than RealPage at the time that I joined there. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was an intern, um, one of the first non-engineering interns they had hired. So there was a debate internally about whether people who weren't engineers added value, and so what you know whether I should be there or not. I think was a, was a subject of of debate amongst the other interns, which um, which was which was a little stress stressful at the time, but funny I think in in retrospect. Um, yeah, and it was. Uh, I don't know how it is now. I'm sure it's still very creative and very exciting. But b- back then, it certainly was. I mean, it was. Um, you know, they were experimenting with all the different uh, workforce and workplace innovations that you see around free food and decorations and um, you know the culture of how you interacted. It was a. It was a really great experience. Um, uh, and you know, for me, it was. It was interesting because I. I had a real choice to make, like, do I go to Google in 2005 or do I go off and do something else? And I actually turned them down, which I think in retrospect was the right decision actually to make because they had already become a big company. They had already IPO'd. I wouldn't have had all these startup experiences had I said yes to that offer. Yeah. And there was, there was a small amount of stock that was granted in that offer from Google that I turned down. And I, uh, I actually took out a loan from somebody to buy that equivalent amount of stock when I turned down the offer so that I wouldn't have any regrets. Well, that was a good call. <laughs> yeah, because it went up about like 150% since then. Yeah, they've had a, de- a pretty decent run. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, um, 
that, like I said, answered all my questions before we ask the standard last two, anything else you're hoping to share today that I can give you a chance to? No, I don't think so. I really enjoyed it, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it was lovely talking with you. I want to make sure that folks can uh, connect with you in the digital world. Uh, what coordinates can we provide if they want to do so? Sure. So first you can, uh, you can uh, follow me on my LinkedIn profile, which is linkedin.com slash, uh, I believe it's Jay Pastor. Yep. I've got uh, it right here. That's correct. All right. I, I couldn't remember if it was John or Jay, but it's J-P-A-S-T-O-R. Um, so that, that would be great. And then please go check out realpage.com, R-E-A-L-P-A-G-E.com. Perfect. We're going to link that in the show notes. You can find it for every single episode of the show at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before I let you go, John, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. An actionable personal challenge. I, I think this is actionable, although it's although it's a little bit difficult, which is That's fine. We like a challenge. Which is you don't you don't have to you don't have to start a company. You don't have to quit your job. But what you do need to do is you need to start a list of ideas of things that you could potentially start. And just you just have to put one idea on the list. Or even better yet, just make the list and don't put any ideas on it as the first step. I love that. Because, I mean, part of, it is, part of it is a narrative people tell themselves is that they, oh, I could never come up with something or I wouldn't have the idea. But it's actually even just getting the, it's, the framework for it to let it, the creative it, juices flow. Yeah, it's an iterative process. The idea you come up with for the first time is seldom the idea that's going to take you through. Um, so, so the key is to just start the iteration, not to come up with a good idea. You mentioned you had a couple ideas before Rent Jungle. Any, any of the ones you can share? Oh, geez. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of different ideas. Um, one of them, which I think someone actually did was to create a competitor to Uber, but have it be buses that carried group of groups of people from city to city instead of, um, individual cars that took people around town. Yeah. But basically anybody with a large minivan or one of those buses or a big van could run the, you know, Pittsburgh to state college route, for example. Due to like Megabus and Greyhound, what Uber did to the taxi cab yeah ex- yeah exactly that would have all right I, any listeners out there go for it i needed that i needed that so bad when i was in college <laughs> megabus was the worst Ugh. <laughs> all right I just, um, I just need one percent if you create the company yes yes send it <laughs> send it reach out on linkedin um john this has been great so thank you so much for coming on the podcast yeah aaron thank you it was great we just went deep with john pastor hope we're not there is a fantastic day Thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with John. If you found this valuable, then definitely check out our recent past interview with his co-founder at Rent Jungle, Gung Wong. Gung is now onto his third startup, Civic Champs, which is focused on a social mission in addition to building a powerful software platform for nonprofit institutions. I learned so much and it is very apparent why these two worked so well together as co-founders. You can get a picture of that and you can learn a ton about the world of business and how to shape a purposeful career on future episodes of this show. Hit subscribe and I will catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.